the diamond I realized that I'm Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. These shoes are a pair of black Nike running shoes. They barely have any stains or any scuffs across the front or sides of the shoes. The laces are in almost perfect condition and nicely tied on top of the shoe. You can tell they haven't been worn outside much and have probably belonged to an avid gym goer who looks after them well. These shoes belong to Aaron. This is his story. So I grew up in, in Tottenham, Southampton with my family, with my mum and dad and my younger sister. Just a pretty normal childhood, really. I was into my extreme sports, rollerblading, skateboarding, BMXing, and I liked to be outside. But I was always in the middle of the road at school. I never, I never really excelled at anything. And ironically, I didn't win a single medal uh, before I became disabled. But that, that was just the way I was. I did my best. But um, I was just always, always kind of in the middle. That's where I sat. It was the first day back to the school after the Christmas holidays in 1999. And I got home and I said that I didn't feel very well. And... My sister and her friend were going off to watch the pantomime at the local theatre, the Mayflower. But I was 15, I was too cool to be going to a pantomime, so I stayed up at, I stayed at home. I got into bed, I had a fever. But, you know, it was January, there was lots of flu around, we didn't think anything of it. And I got up and I was sick twice in the night. And I got up in the morning and I collapsed on the landing. So my dad heard me fall down, scooped me up and put me on my parents' bed. And they called out a doctor who called out an ambulance. And within 12 hours, I ended up on a life support machine. So I had meningococcal septicemia or meningitis type C and they put me into an induced coma in hospital and I was unconscious for two weeks. And what happened was your body's really clever at keeping you alive and because I had sepsis, I basically didn't get enough blood to the ends of my legs and the tips of my fingers. So they woke me up in hospital and broke the news to me that I was going to have to become an amputee. At 15, I don't have to sort of say to you how difficult that was. But the strange thing is, the other thing it did was it almost sparked a light bulb above my head. And it gave me this drive that I never had before. And I thought, wow, if that can't kill me, nothing can. And it made me really, really motivated. I demanded more physio sessions. So the physios used to come in on their lunch break and do extra physiotherapy sessions with me because I wanted to get better as quick as I could. But I left hospital and went back to leading what you could call a pretty normal life. I went to college and I did my A-levels, passed my driving test. And I just sort of fell into sport. I'd love to say that it was my goal, as I was poorly, to become a Paralympian, but that wasn't the case. I entered the Tottenham 10K race to raise some money for charity, did it in an everyday wheelchair and got beat by absolutely every runner, but loved it and decided that I wanted to do more races. So I got myself a second-hand racing wheelchair, started entering more races, and someone said to me, why don't you enter the London Marathon? And me being me, I went, yeah, all right. Got accepted first time, thought I'd done enough training, but in hindsight, I'd probably not done enough training. Did the London Marathon, halfway round my chair broke, but I managed to finish it with horrendous cramp in my backside. And again, that light bulb went off again and got this weird drive inside me. When I start something, I have trouble stopping. And I started training up to 10 times a week in wheelchair racing, which was probably too much really. And then I came back and did the London Marathon the next year. Now the first time I did the London Marathon, I did it in two and a half hours. I trained my backside off that entire year, came back again the next year and did it in one hour, 59 minutes. So it's half an hour off my time in one year, which was massive. No one had ever done that before. And because of how fast I'd gone, I got headhunted by the GB wheelchair rugby team. And they asked me if I wanted to go and try this sport wheelchair rugby. Wheelchair rugby is bananas. It's the only full contact wheelchair sport, so you're allowed to smash other people out of their wheelchair. So I went along and gave it a go and I fell in love with it. 
it, it turns out I absolutely love smashing people out of their wheelchair. I went off around the world playing this sport and we got back to the UK in 2009. And they said to me, do you realize if you work your backside off, you could get selected for the Paralympics, London 2012. And I went, what? Me, Aaron from Totten near Southampton, go to the Paralympics. So I had this goal, absolutely massive goal. I wanted to represent GB and go to the games. But it wasn't that simple. Um, I'd got married, I had a mortgage. I couldn't just stop working. So I had to work a full-time job and fit my training in around my job. So it'd be lots of getting up and getting to the gym at five o'clock in the morning, training until about half past eight, then going to work. This is no word of a lie. I used to go and have five minute power naps in the disabled toilet at work because I used to be so broken. So it was, it was daft really, training to absolute failure and then going and working my little office job. But all the hard work paid off and I was selected to go to London. And that was such an experience. We did it so well. We nearly sold out the entire event, which has never happened before, ever. But as an athlete, I'll be honest, um, I'm quite competitive and I wanted to win and we came fifth. I'm training for the next games now, which would have been this year, 2020, but it's now going to be 21. My proudest moment was after a game against America. We were thanking the audience. I went around the crowd and I got as close as I could to uh, my wife, Vicky, and my little girl, Ella. And I was waving from the, from the court. Ella clocked me, leant forward in her mummy's lap, put her little arms up and was saying, cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. And that was the first proudest moment of my life. So I took a break from playing wheelchair rugby after London 2012. And while I was taking a break, Kilimanjaro seemed like a good idea. So again, this all just started by chance. When Mike from the charity turned up at my house and said, we send loads of people up Kilimanjaro to raise money for us. Do you fancy it? I went, yeah, all right. Didn't actually know what Kilimanjaro was, but I agreed to it. When he left, I Googled it. And if you Google Kilimanjaro, it's a big lump in the ground at 5,896 meters tall. World's biggest freestanding mountain. But it's not a very technical mountain, which is why lots of people do it for charity. Because if you're prepared to dig deep, and if you don't get altitude sickness, most able-bodied people can walk their way to the top in about six days. You kind of zigzag your way up. We looked into it. Other people have been up in a chair. They've been carried to the top. I didn't want to be carried to the top. I wanted to do it myself. So we set this goal to become the first person in the world to get to the top, Kilimanjaro, in a wheelchair, but without any assistance. Which seemed like a good idea when we set it. So we flew out to Tanzania and I had this specially adapted off-road wheelchair called a mountain trike. Day one was meant to take between two and three hours to get to the very first camp. Didn't take between two and three hours, took us six and a half hours. Next day was meant to take between four and five hours, including a lunch break. Didn't take that long, took ten and a half hours. So it didn't really come as any surprise. I was sat eating my breakfast on the side of the mountain the next day and Joshua, the head guy, came to speak to me. And he's pulling that face, you know, when you think this isn't going to go well. And he sat down next to me and said, Aaron, what's your goal? And I looked at him puzzled and said to get to the top. And he said, good, I'm glad that's your goal because that's my goal as well. Unfortunately, there's a problem. Your wheelchair's moving too slowly and you can't stay at altitude for too long because it's dangerous. So we're going to have to carry you. And I did not want to hear this. This trek had been three and a half years in development, eight months of intensive training. We raised 20,000 pounds for charity. I wasn't going to get carried. But I had something with me. I had my knee pads with me. So I've got some carpenter's knee pads that I wear when I haven't got my prosthetic legs on, which I can't wear much anyway because of my scars. So I never would have been able to walk up the mountain. So I duct taped my knee pads to my legs. I jumped out my wheelchair and I started crawling. And after crawling on my hands and knees for nine and a half kilometers up the mountain that first day, we got into camp that night and my legs were bad, but they weren't horrendous. And I knew if they were, Holly was gonna pull rank, our doctor, 
and tell me that I had to be carried up the mountain, but she didn't. And I confided in Holly and said, look, if I'm doing myself any serious damage, never wear my prosthetic legs ever again or get an infection, then we stop. Otherwise, we carry on. And Holly agreed. So I crawled on my hands and knees for the next four days, refusing any help from the guides. And at the end of the um, fourth day, which was the sixth day overall, because we did uh, two days in the chair, four days crawling, we were going to attempt the summit. So the summit is the push up to the very top and you set off at midnight. And that was the hardest thing that I've ever done. It was so steep at times. I don't know why they told me I could go up in a wheelchair. You couldn't have ridden a mountain bike up here. As I was going along, I was reaching failure, so I'd be sick, crawl around it, keep going. I had my glasses on, and as I was going along, I was crying. I was watching my eyes go all fuzzy, and teardrops rolling off my eyelashes and dropping into the spotlight of my headlamp. Ten and a half hours later, we made it to the very top, and that was one of the proudest moments of my life. And my little two little girls, Ella and Chloe, had made a post that said, good luck, daddy. So I carried it all the way to the top in my pocket. And I got to sit on top of the mountain and hold their poster and say, look what I've achieved. And funny enough, you get quite a good phone signal on top of a mountain. So I managed to connect to the Kenyan phone network and we're having a WhatsApp conversation with home. I'm sending pictures of me on the top of the mountain. And that was one of the proudest moments of my life. Aaron's story was produced by Simon Clark. His shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's A Mile In My Shoes exhibition. The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we are going next. <laughs>